Mr. Paul from Texas is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I am disheartened by the administration's recent decision to impose a 30% tariff on steel imports. This measure will hurt far more Americans than it will help, and it takes a step backwards toward the protectionist thinking that dominated the Washington in decades past. What most Washington politicians really believe in is government-managed trade, not free trade. True free trade, by definition, takes place only in the absence of government interference of any kind, including tariffs. Apparently, no one in the administration has read Henry Hazlitt's classic book, Economics in One Lesson. Professor Hazlitt's fundamental lesson was simple. We must examine economic policy by considering the long-term effects of any proposal on all groups. We will all pay, but the cost will be spread out and hidden, so no one complains. The domestic steel industry, however, has complained, and it has the corporate and union power that scares politicians in Washington. What happens to the wonderful harmony that the WTO was supposed to bring to the global market? The administration has been roundly criticized since the steel decision was announced last week, especially by our WTO partners. The European Union is preparing to impose retaliatory sanctions to protect its own steel industry. This is what happens when we let government manage trade schemes pick winners and losers in the global trading game. The truly deplorable thing about all this is that the WTO is touted as promoting free trade. Hey everyone, Stephen Clyde here back for another week of spreading the message of peace and liberty. And as you may have noticed, that was a few clips of a Ron Paul speech where he spoke about the Trump tariffs, except it wasn't. The things he said could have been said today, but that was actually back in 2002 when Bush implemented steel tariffs up to 30%, which we'll discuss. But the lesson for today is that tariffs are a form of taxation and taxation is theft. Hazlitt's economics in one lesson, which is an imperative read if you are new to history and economics. Uh, this will be my main resource I reference for this episode and the first two lessons he gives reaches across every sphere in academia. For example, the first chapter of that book titled The Lesson talks about the insight that Frederick Bastiat provided us, which is that there are scenes and unseens for all actions. In fact, I'll start by quoting Bastiat from the law. In the economic sphere an act, a habit, an institution, a law, produces not only one effect, but a series of effects. Of these effects, the first alone is immediate. It appears simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The other effects emerge only subsequently. They are not seen. We are fortunate if we foresee them. And Bastiat goes on to say, yet this difference is tremendous, for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the later consequences are disastrous, and vice versa. Whence, it follows that the bad economist pursues a small present good that will be followed by a great evil to come, while the good economist pursues a great good to come, at the risk of a small present evil. Now, that was written in 1850, but Hazlitt, having written Economics in One Lesson in 1946, reiterated this point beautifully in quoting Hazlitt now. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. 
And the ending of the first chapter can be overlooked. He notes that it is often sadly remarked that the bad economists present their errors to the public better than the good economists present their truths. And if you don't believe him, again, he wrote that in 1946, just look at the exact economic policies that have thrived since then. Now, like I've mentioned in past episodes, it's important that people in the libertarian movement be able to demolish our opponent's arguments as easily as we can solve the problem two plus two. It just comes with reading and time, but time will continue on whether you read or not, and you don't want to end up like this guy. One of those questions where uh, America, or me anyway, it just goes over my head. Bless his heart. Uh, so today's episode will be like Drano for the clogged mind. We can't let the enemy get away with their fruitless claims. Now, with regard to the seen and the unseen, there are endless examples of, of this, namely almost any legislation passed by any politician. But the second chapter goes on to give an example that we in economics call the broken window fallacy. I could paraphrase this myself, but it's quite simple and it's quite simple to understand. But I'm going to again quote directly from Hazlitt because if you've never read him, try to understand how good of a writer he was. He was praised by everyone at that time period, even the famous H.L. Mencken who wrote for the Baltimore Sun. He asked you to envision this illustration. A young hoodlum, say, heaves a brick through the window of a baker's shop. The shopkeeper runs out furious, but the boy is gone. A crowd gathers and begins to stare with quiet satisfaction at the gaping hole in the window and the shattered glass all over the bread and pies. After a while, the crowd feels the need for philosophic reflection. And several of its members are almost certain to remind each other or the baker that, after all, the misfortune has its bright side. It will make business for some glazier. As they begin to think of this, they elaborate upon it. How much does a new plate glass window cost? $50? That will be quite a sum. After all, if windows were never broken, what would happen to the glass business? Then, of course, the thing is endless. The glacier will have $50 more to spend with other merchants, and these in turn will have $50 more to spend with still other merchants, and so ad infinitum. The smashed windows will go on providing money and employing employment in ever-widening circles. The logical conclusion from all this would be, if the crowd drew it, that the little hoodlum who threw the brick far from being a public menace was a public benefactor. Now, if you're wondering at this point, how does this relate to tariffs? Well, the answer is in every way possible. The argument right now runs as such. China has high import tariffs placed on us, meaning it's expensive for us to export stuff to them. So in turn, we should make import tariffs or we should, we should put import tariffs on them, making it expensive for them to export stuff to us. And in particular, we're seeing tariffs on steel and aluminum, steel at 25% and aluminum at 10%. And if all goes as planned, Steel manufacturers will get a boost because now that China will be much less likely to export steel to us, uh, manufacturers who rely on steel and aluminum in their products will inevitably have to buy it here. Now again, think back to the lesson we just went over. When you break a window, you aren't adding wealth to the economy. You haven't created jobs. All you've done is forcefully reappropriate the owner of the window's funds, namely the $50 they will, they're going to spend on a new window is $50 that would have gone to any area of the market and applying their logic to the fullest extent. Isn't taking potential profits away from the tailor, as Hazlitt mentions, a bad thing? Or how about the grocer? Wouldn't they have thrived with that $50? And again, we're just applying their logic. Shouldn't additional policies be put in place to offset every potential loss in a given area? 
So even if even if the effects of these tariffs had the desired outcome in the short run, namely steel producers in the U.S. get more business at first, that's that's ignoring the unseen, which is that every manufacturer that uses steel or aluminum in the production of their products will see a price increase. Because remember, we import things because it's cheaper. Would you rather wait two days for a package mailed domestic in the U.S. or would you rather wait upwards of two weeks to receive a package from Europe or Asia? Well, it depends. What are the costs of each? Maybe I would wait two weeks if the price was cheap enough, but, obvi but obviously I want the cheapest and quickest option. So if companies that use steel and aluminum see price increases, do those costs disappear or are they transferred? And who are they transferred to? Well, they're transferred to us, the U.S. consumer. So by essentially propping up a few steel producers for a short time, it eventually all falls apart because wealth can't be created by destruction and it can't be created by ignoring costs that offset benefits. And I'm not even trying to create a utilitarian argument here, but you, you have to be completely blind to not recognize that you aren't helping the economy if ultimately your, your intervention leads to the benefits being offset by things like job losses, loss of demand because of higher prices and when we get into the Bush tariffs of 2002, you'll notice that it was a net loss. Now, I'm going to briefly mention a Walter Williams article. And if you don't know Walter Williams, he's the distinguished professor currently still at George Mason University. Uh, he's an intellectual giant like others uh, like Thomas Sowell. And this article, which I'll link to, is on LeeRockwell.com. Now, he starts off by asking, why would we want these tariffs and what are the intentions? Quoting from the article, the answer is simple. Reducing the amount of steel and aluminum that hit our shores enables American producers to charge higher prices. Thus, U.S. steel and aluminum producers will earn higher profits, hire more workers, and pay them higher wages. They're the visible beneficiaries of Trump's tariffs. But when the government creates a benefit for one American, it is a virtual guarantee that it will come at the expense of another American, an unseen victim. The victims of steel and aluminum tariffs are the companies that use steel and aluminum. Faced with higher input costs, they become less competitive on the world market. For example, companies such as John Deere may respond to higher steel prices by purchasing their parts in the international market rather than in the U.S. To become more competitive in the world market, some firms may move their production facilities to foreign countries that do not have tariffs on foreign steel and aluminum. Uh, studies by both the Peterson Institute uh, for International Economics and the Consuming Industries Trade Action Coalition show that steel-using industries, such as the U.S. auto industry, its suppliers and manufacturers of heavy construction equipment, were harmed by tariffs on steel enacted by George W. Bush. Now, how else does this affect us, though? affect us though. Well, Williams uses the sugar industry as an example because they like to place restrictions on the importation of foreign sugar. And he says, quote, a report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office estimated that Americans pay an extra $2 billion a year because of sugar tariffs and quotas. Plus, taxpayers will be forced to pay more than $2 billion over the next 10 years to buy and store excess sugar produced because of higher prices. Another way to look at the cost side is that tens of millions of American families are forced to pay a little bit more, maybe $20 for the sugar we use every year. Now, the short run benefit is sure, sugar producers will fare a little bit better and why wouldn't they? The consumers, namely us, are barred from purchasing sugar at lower prices because of these tariffs. 
or maybe this sounds familiar if you're familiar with the Boston Tea Party. Now, for a little history recap, tea was very popular in Britain. And considering Britain colonized North America, they were heavy consumers of tea. By, by 1760, the colonies were consuming over a million pounds a year of the stuff. So when Britain imposed, yes, import tariffs, what do you think the response was? What do you remember the phrase, no taxation without representation? Well, that was born out of the fact that the colonies were taxed without their consent. And yes, tariffs are taxes. Another thing that was going on was that taxes would be avoided altogether by smuggling tea in from places like Holland. And indeed, about three-fourths of the tea coming in at that time was smuggled in. In 1767, the import taxes really kicked in. And this, of course, led to things like the Boston Massacre in 1770, where British Army soldiers uh, fired into a crowd, killed five colonists, wounded six others, and you had people like Sam Adams and Paul Revere who were urging the citizens to rebel. Uh, December 16, 1773, upwards of 50 men marched down to Griffin's Wharf and stormed aboard three ships, threw about 342 chests of tea overboard. Britain responded with the chorus of Acts of 1774, but you can see that this all led to the American Revolution. The colonists did not want to be at the hands of some tyrannical ruler who places taxes on them, which they have no say over, and which decreases their standard of living. And sure, under the 1773 Tea Act, there were supposed to be different parts around the colonies where Britain would sell tea to directly, uh, and those ports would lower costs, but it was obvious still to the colonists that this, this was a British monopoly. And it's interesting because I just mentioned, mentioned Walter Williams, but I was listening to him on a show the other day, and he noted that back when we broke away from Britain during the American Revolution, we did it because we didn't want to work two weeks for King George. Now we're seemingly comfortable with the fact that if you pay 30% a year in taxes, you're ultimately working for the government from the beginning of January to mid-April. Now, getting back to the steel and aluminum tariffs, let's examine first what happened with the Bush tariffs. In March 2002, Tariffs as high as 30% were placed upon steel imports. And the reasoning was because over 30, 30 steel producers had gone bankrupt in recent years and that we needed to save the U.S. steel industry. And keep in mind, these tariffs were set to stay in place till 2005. So what happened? Well, they were an abysmal failure from the start. For example, the European Union right away stated that they were going to impose retaliatory tariffs. This led to a case being filed at the dispute settlement body, which is a part of the World, Health, a World Trade Organization, and they deal with trade disputes. Well, they ruled that the tariffs were unjust, that they were applied during a surge because, in fact, steel imports had dropped in 2001 and 2002. And ultimately, $2.2 billion in sanctions were threatened against us. And at first, Bush wasn't buying it. He said the tariffs are going to stay. But come 2003, December 2003, Bush lifted the tariffs to avoid a literal trade war. But keep in mind all these details because it validates the notion that history repeats itself. And I'm going to link to a paper in the show notes, but it's from the Consuming Industries Trade Action Coalition. And what they found was startling and quoting from the paper now. 200,000 Americans lost their jobs to higher steel prices during 2002. These lost jobs represent approximately $4 billion in wages from February to November 2002. One out of four, which was 50,000, of these job losses occurred in the metal manufacturing machinery and equipment and transportation equipment and parts. 
more American workers lost their jobs in 2002 to higher steel prices than the total number employed by U.S. steel industry itself. And here's the real kicker. More American workers lost their jobs in 2002 to higher steel prices than the total number employed by the U.S. steel industry itself. I'm going to repeat that one one more time. More American workers lost their jobs in 2002 to higher steel prices than the total number employed by the U.S. steel industry itself. Even the argument that is meant to help businesses is shoddy because take this for example, which is also in the paper. The vast majority of steel consuming manufacturers are small businesses. In fact, 98% of all the 193,000 U.S. firms in steel consuming sectors employ less than 500 workers, according to the Small Business Administration. So the manufacturers who use steel and who we mentioned got crushed are 98% small businesses. This isn't to protect industry as a whole. It's to protect the few people who have the power to collude with the government. And the government's got the big guns. If you think I'm kidding, watch this. I might want to start with uh, Dave Barrett from U.S. Steel. This is vital to the interests of the United States. This is our moment. And it's really important that we get this right. The alternatives that uh, Commerce Secretary presented were all good alternatives, and we trust your judgment in terms of the ones to be selected. We are not protectionists. We want a level playing field. It's for our employees to support our customers. And when we get this right, it will be great for the United States of America. Uh, they won't be dumping on our country. What they do is they dump massive amounts of product in our country, and it just kills, it destroys our companies and our jobs. All right, so let's take that point by point. So Annette's Dave Burrett starts off by saying that this is vital to the interests of the United States. Now, think about what we just went over. Most people who use steel in their manufacturing processes are small businesses. They are hurt by the tariffs. They aren't helped by them. And Burrett knows that. The only people being helped by these tariffs are a few steel producers. But again, historically, there's a net loss here. And how about the fact that he says he's not a protectionist? Well, and, and that he wants to, and that he wants it to be a level playing field. It kind of sounds like you ever heard this one? We're not socialists. We just believe in equality. He just wants to be. He just wants to use protectionist policies that would benefit steel producers like him, right? And I edited this video down a little bit to show a few points. But um, Dave Burrett used to be in steel. He went bankrupt. And now he wants Congress to pass a law, or in this case, an import tariff. And then lastly, Trump states that China, quote unquote, dumps products here. You mean the products we enjoy buying at a low cost that has brought millions of people out of poverty, those products? So first off, good economists realize that free trade is necessary because we live in a very, very unequal world. Just to give one example, most of the tornadoes in the entire earth occur in one location, that is Tornado Alley in the U.S., even just in the U.S., there is a reason we have a north and a south, namely that the south was more fertile and had the correct climate to thrive agriculturally, and the north was known for industry. So in general, there is a reason why certain things are produced in certain places. Uh, if we're talking about just natural resources, I mean, obviously, obviously, some natural resources are more prominent than in some areas versus others. Obviously. But now try to really let this sink in, though. If we're talking about steel produced worldwide, China produces 
nearly 50% of it. The U.S., on the other hand, produces about 5%. So yes, China produces about 10 times more steel than we do. Out of the steel produced, what is most of it used for? Well, nearly 50% for buildings and infrastructure, 16% in mechanical equipment, 13% in automotive, etc. And also keep in mind that the U.S. is the world's top steel importer. We're the top importer. So for example, we imported about $29 billion in 2017, and only about 17% of our steel comes from Canada. Steel, steel and aluminum together account for about 2% of all of world trade. Hopefully all of this is starting to become very clear. Now, I'm going to end the episode by referring people to chapter 11 of Economics in One Lesson because this is the chapter where he takes on tariffs. And in fact, the title of the chapter is Who is Protected by Tariffs? He gives an example in which he discusses an American wool sweater manufacturer that wants, to, that wants import tariffs imposed because they sell their sweaters for $15 each, but the English manufacturer overseas in Europe can afford to sell them for $10 each. So theoretically, a tariff of $5 on English sweater imports would be needed to keep the American company in business. The fear is that if American companies go, the, the fear is that American companies would go out of business, that this will cost a lot of jobs. Sure it would, but other, other things happen too. Quoting Hazlitt now, for now, sweaters that formerly cost $15 a piece can be bought for $10. Consumers can now buy the same quality of sweater for less money or a much better one for the same money. If they buy the same quality of sweater, they not only get the sweater, but they have $5 left over, which they would not have had under the previous conditions. He also takes on the notion that exports should exceed imports, which of course as part of the equation of GDP, which includes net exports. I'll save that for another discussion on GDP, but I hope this information will help you challenge these ideas. Some are saying that the steel import is necessary because we need to produce more steel here for things like Navy ships when tariffs will inev inevitably hurt that cause as well. Again, China produces half the world's steel and operating at maximum capacity, we could never touch these numbers. Well, I've got some great guests coming on soon and the rest of the week's episode are recorded, so I can sit back and enjoy my spring break, but don't fall for the media hype. Even if you like Trump on some issues, you're allowed to disagree with him. He's clearly wrong here. We have a mountain of evidence on our side to show that. Now that these tariffs have been implemented, we are on the brink of a trade war, which hopefully will be avoided. Tariffs are taxes, folks. And taxation is forceful seizure of people, people's wealth, and therefore it's theft. See y'all tomorrow. Hey everyone, please like, follow, donate, subscribe, and share. Any donations will be used to reach more people.